Well, let's turn in our copy of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Let's pay careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and guidance this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 1 as we focus our attention upon the last four verses You may recall last time we focused on verse 28 where Paul says that even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And we saw verse 28 really transitioning us into that fifth and final stage of decline that began with ingratitude and then sank down to idolatry and then immorality, perversion, and now utter chaos and confusion as wickedness is unleashed upon society, filled with all unrighteousness, full of envy, murder, strife. There's just a a great multiplication on an exponential level of sin as God pulls back the restraints and allows human sin to run wild as it desires to do in in this pervasive way. Doing that which is not fitting. 
And we, we said there's some irony here in the way that Paul speaks. Verse 28, uh, when it says they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so they reject God. Uh, the word like, or I think the way I explained this could have been said better last time, the, the idea of not liking. If you take the phrase not like, that really corresponds to the word debased when it says God gave them over to a debased mind. Because that word debased is the opposite of the word like. So they did not like. They chose to reject God and therefore God gave them a mind that was reprobate, rejected, or incapable of making right judgments. Uh, They found God to be defective and they discarded Him and so God gave them over to a defective mind such that they were discarded and they began to do things that were not fitting. And we're told what those things are. We're really given a window into this fifth stage of decline. And you see that in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. And what follows is a series of words and phrases that really leads up to a semicolon toward the end of the verse. So there are a number of sections in this series of sins that Paul describes in the next few verses. The first section is in verse 29, from being filled with all unrighteousness all the way down toward the end of the verse to the word maliciousness, which ends with a semicolon in the middle of the verse. And this first section speaks of the corrupt character of mankind under this judicial hardening, under this judgment of God. It speaks of their corrupt character. So you see it begins with filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, semicolon. That's the first major section that we're going to consider their corrupt character. After that semicolon, you see the word full. So just like the first section dealing with their corrupt character began with the word filled, filled with all unrighteousness, here you have the second major section beginning with the word full. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. Semicolon. That's the second major section And that deals with their toxic relationships. So you've got their corrupt character. You then see how it spills over into these toxic relationships, ending with the word evil-mindedness in verse 29 toward the end there. And then what follows thirdly is the next grouping. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, Uh, inventors of evil things. And really at that point there should be a semicolon because that's the end of the third grouping which speaks of their venomous words. So we've got their corrupt character, their toxic relationships, and their venomous words. Ending there with inventors, or really a better term, their discoverers of evil. Those who seek to find dirt on people and then they they spread that. Discoverers of evil. We'll see that in a moment. So that's the end of the third major section. Inventors of evil things. Then comes the fourth section which consists of a series of negations. So for instance, when we say the word atheism, you see in the word atheism that there's the, the prefix A, the letter A, and theism. Theism is the belief in God. Atheism is the disbelief in God. And that prefix A is utilized throughout the Greek language to negate certain things. So that negation, you might think, begins at the beginning of verse 31 with undiscerning. But it actually begins at the end of verse 30 with disobedient to parents. Because you could actually translate that... uh, disrespectful. It's the negation of respect for parents in Greek. So you have this fourth category, these destabilizing deficits, the things that are lacking in this chaotic, wicked culture, the things that are gone. 
Uh, respect for parents is gone. Discernment is gone. Undiscerning. Untrustworthy. Integrity is gone. Unloving. Unforgiving. Unmerciful. And those three obviously go together. There's just no love. As wickedness prevails, the hearts of many grow cold. The love of many grows cold. And so you can see these four categories. Their corrupt character, their toxic relationships, their venomous words, and their destabilizing deficits. Now we could add a fifth category at the end, verse 32, their inescapable condemnation. Because in fact, in their conscience, as much as they've been suppressing and disregarding and discarding the truth of God, nevertheless, they know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Nevertheless, they do these things, they applaud these things, they approve these things, and they approve people to do these things. But deep down they know, and so there's this inescapable condemnation. Now this morning, God willing, we'll be considering the first two or three of these categories, and then uh, our plan uh, is to consider the remaining portions this evening. So first, we can see their corrupt character. Now again, before I even get into that, let me just say this, that let's remind ourselves of the epistle to the Romans and the context here. In chapters 1 and 2 and into chapter 3 up to verse 20, the Apostle Paul is presenting to us the reality of human sin. He's shown us that his gospel centers upon the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. That we are all unrighteous. We're all sinners. We need our sin taken away and we need it replaced with the righteousness of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel of which the Apostle Paul is not ashamed. And from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, he is demonstrating the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. He's showing that we don't have righteousness. In fact, we're unrighteous, we're guilty, we're wicked, and we even know in our consciences deep down that we deserve eternal destruction, that the wages of sin is death. And so he begins at the second half of chapter 1 dealing with the Gentile nations who have the light of nature and of the human conscience. And that... A bit of a remnant of the image of God still within them. And they're held accountable for their sin against those things. The light of God's natural revelation. Then he goes into chapter 2 and he deals with the Jewish people who have special revelation. They have the law and the prophets and the Psalms. They have the word of truth. And they sin against the light of God's word. And they're found to be unrighteous. And so he comes to chapter 3. He says... The Jews are no better than the Gentiles, nor the Gentiles any better off than the Jews. They're all under sin. No one is righteous. Chapter 3, verse 10. No, not one. That's why he's doing this. So understand the context. He's demonstrating to us why we need to be saved. Why we need a Savior. Why we need salvation. And so Romans begins with sin. And then chapter 3, verse 21 And beyond, for several chapters, it deals with salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And eventually, having received salvation, we're called to service. And he shows from chapter 12 through the rest of the epistle what that Christian life looks like. That life of gratitude and service that Paul says, in a sense, is a debt of gratitude. He's indebted to grace. He owes it to the Lord. The Lord has saved him. The Lord has given Himself for him. And so now he wants to offer up himself as a living sacrifice in in gratitude and thankfulness and obedience to the Lord. Sin, salvation, and service. Now as we look at this first section of sin and we begin to consider the climax of Romans 1 in these verses, recognize that if you're outside of Christ, the purpose of this discussion that we're having here, going through these various terms and sins, the purpose here is to show you your need for Christ. You may not think you need Christ. You may look at the Bible 
and you may have objections and you may find, well, I, I don't believe this or I, I can't quite wrap my mind around that. And, and you have these intellectual uh, challenges in terms of believing in Christ. But what this sermon is intended for you is just to point out the fact that one way or the other, you need to be saved. Forget about, forget about the Bible for a moment. You need to be saved. Even in your own conscience, you know as we discuss these sins that you're guilty of these sins, many of them, and that you know in your conscience that you deserve judgment and wrath and punishment. You know that. So the purpose of going through this is just to reinforce you need a Savior. You can't just come to the Gospel of Jesus Christ with an intellectual fascination or curiosity. You need to come with a sense of need. Is this the way of salvation? Because I need salvation. You can't just come and say, well, I'm just going to read through this and, and uh, like a wine connoisseur, you just swish it around in your mouth and oh, there's a bit of cherry and chestnuts. You need to come to the Bible looking for salvation as a thirsty man looking for a well, as a hungry man looking for food. And that's what these verses are meant to do. Uh, you can lead a horse to water. You can't force it to drink, but you can put salt in its mouth, and that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's showing us our great need for salvation. But you may be a believer. You may have received salvation through faith in Christ. You're righteous in Christ, and you're seeking to live the Christian life, that life of service and gratitude. Well, this series of verses is relevant for you as well especially as many of us prepare to come to the Lord's table next Sabbath evening. Because the fact of the matter is that these sins of our culture, which we've seen this process of decline is taking place all around us, we've seen how easy it is for Christians to conform to the pattern of this world. And you're not going to be able to live that life of service and self-sacrifice, offering up your body as a living sacrifice, unless at the same time, you be careful to not conform to the pattern of this world. And so you need to have your mind renewed by these verses as we consider these sins. Are there sins here that have been so easily entangling you in your life of Christian service? Are there sins here that are plaguing you? Are there sins that are plaguing the church? Is it possible that we're in this state of decline in our country because these same very sins that we see all around us are in some way characteristic of the church itself? We've lost our saltiness. And in fact, when Paul gets to the church or the religious community of the Jews in chapter 2, he convicts them of their hypocrisy. He says, look, you've been teaching all these things. You haven't been living a consistent life in obedience to these principles. And he actually says, Romans chapter 2, verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So we can't just take Romans 1 as uh, an opportunity to get on our bully pulpit and just bash the culture around us we also need to take to heart that it's our inconsistency, and again, we'll get to this, God willing, in chapter 2, we'll spend a lot of time in this, but it's our inconsistency, our conformity to the pattern of this world that in many ways has led to this decline in the first place. The salt that is to preserve has lost its saltiness. So we need to keep these things in mind. Uh, This fifth stage of chaos is evident around us. Like in the days of the judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And the first and foremost thing Paul points out here is their corrupt character. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Being filled. Notice that term. There was unrighteousness before. They were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness even in the early stages of this chapter. But here we're told that now they're filled to the brim. It's more abundant, more pervasive. James 1.21 speaks of filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. Uh, Or as the King James says, the superfluity of naughtiness. Uh, The overflow of wickedness. 
It's just everywhere. It's boiling over out of the wicked and depraved human heart of unbelief. And Isaiah 59 describes something of this. There are a number of passages in the Scriptures that describe this sort of chaos and overflow of wickedness and filling with injustice. Isaiah 59 verse 4. Just think about what it means for a society and for an individual to be filled with all unrighteousness. Righteousness means justice. It means equity. It means morality. Uh, When there's unrighteousness, that means that we have no standard of right and wrong. Or if we have it, we're disregarding it. There's no love for our neighbor. We, earlier we distinguished between ungodliness, our sins against God, unrighteousness, our sins against others. In a society that speaks so much about social justice, is it possible that we're actually filled with all forms of unrighteousness and injustice? The Romans spoke a lot about justice. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But Paul says you're filled with all unrighteousness and injustice. In any event, uh, Isaiah 59 verse 4, no one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies And from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments. He's saying they're clothed in this false righteousness that it's it's just like a spider's web. It's nothing. It's nothing. You need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But he says, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity. Their works are not going to cover them. They're going to make them more guilty. Filthy rags of unrighteousness. We're told, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. We live in a culture and a society that talks more about love and peace than ever before and experiences less of it than ever before. We're polarized. We're at each other's throats. There's violence in the streets. There's conflict. And and it's so obvious the way of peace they have not known. Why? Because... uh, Peace is the fruit of righteousness, the Bible says. When there's unrighteousness, there's not going to be peace. And if there's peace, it's only as the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Therefore, justice is far from them, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. He goes on the end of verse 11, we look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. People today are looking for salvation. They may not call it that. They're looking for a solution. They're looking for something. What is going to solve this problem in my life or in my family? What's going to solve the problem in our society? These problems that are multiplying daily. The answer, the solution, it's nowhere to be found. We're blind, we're dead, there's no justice, no righteousness. And yet we have this inward desire for a solution for righteousness, for justice, for peace. Why is that? It was because God has placed eternity in our hearts that we would desire Him, the only source of righteousness and peace. But we're not finding it. 
were filled, rather than filled with peace and joy, filled with all unrighteousness. We have a God-shaped hole in our lives and we're filling it with whatever we can find and whatever we can find tends to be sin and unrighteousness and idolatry and we are weighed down with it. There's no justice. Verse 12, For our transgressions are multiplied before You. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. If you're outside of Christ, can you honestly tell me that you don't have sin in your life? That when I was reading the Scripture passage earlier in the service, not one of those things convicted you that you're guilty. Isaiah says, listen to your conscience. Your sin is testifying against you. Your transgressions are right there before your eyes. Your iniquities, deep down, you know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, what's your relationship with God? Why do you think God made human beings with a mind and an ability to know Him with a soul? Why do you think God made you the way you are? With a conscience, a sense of right and wrong? With some type of inclination toward religion and spirituality? Why do you think, even in your fallen condition, why do you think God made you with those things? He made you for Himself. But you have departed from Him. He made you so that you would fill yourself with Him, but you filled yourself instead with all unrighteousness, with sexual immorality, with carnal, fleshly, earthly pleasures and practices. Your God is your belly, and yet you're still not satisfied. You've been given over to wickedness. No limits, no morals. This this disregard for God and disregard for others, this spirit of covetousness whereby you, you greedily seek to gain the whole world even if it means losing your own soul and this maliciousness or badness or malignity of heart that causes you to steamroll other people when they get in your way. Like a dog that's guarding its bone and, and you, you, know, you make a sudden move and it gnashes its teeth at you. You know in your heart that there have been those moments where that sinful godlessness has come out. That unrighteousness that you filled yourself with that has not satisfied you. You've departed from God. Verse 14, justice or righteousness is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. In yourself right now, you could not be further from righteousness. There's no righteousness in you. And the fact is that you're nowhere near righteousness. It's afar off because you've departed from God. God is your only hope of righteousness. The Bible says, the Lord, our righteousness. That's who God is. That's what God provides through His Son, Jesus Christ. And in departing from God, you've departed from righteousness. That's why, verse 14, righteousness stands afar off Because in verse 13, you've departed from God. Righteousness is standing afar off. God Himself, Christ Himself, who is your only hope of righteousness, He's standing afar off because you've left Him. You've departed from Him. But the beauty is that though He stands afar off, He's still calling you. He's calling you to Himself. He's pointing you to the work of righteousness that He has accomplished on behalf of all who put their trust in Him. We're told, so truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Canceled. Canceled. You repent, you depart from evil, you make yourself vulnerable to being canceled. But then the Lord saw it. The Lord our righteousness. He's standing afar off, but He's seeing it. And it displeased Him. Isn't that a beautiful statement there? That when God Himself in the person of Christ looks upon sinners who have departed from Him as He stands afar off, 
having been ignored, having been despised, having been rejected. He looks at you on your way to hell. He looks at sinners departing, driving 90 miles an hour toward the edge of the cliff. He looks at that and it displeases Him. It displeases Him. He doesn't look at that and say, well, good riddance. And He would have every right to say that. But if that was His mentality, I wouldn't be standing here in the pulpit today. And those of you that are children of God, saved by Christ, you wouldn't be who you are today if that was His attitude. It displeased Him. It displeased Him that there was no justice He saw that there was no man. That there's nobody. You can't save yourself. Somebody else can't save you. The Virgin Mary can't save you. St. Anthony can't even help you find your car keys. There's no man. There's nobody. There's no hope other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wondered that there was no intercessor, no mediator to stand in the gap between God and wicked sinners bent on their own self-destruction. Therefore, His own arm brought salvation for Him. And His own righteousness, it sustained Him. He, he put on, we're told, righteousness as a breastplate. Not the filthy rags of, of self-righteousness. Not the spider's web. He put on the breastplate of righteousness. And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. What he's saying is, I've come. I've conquered. I've destroyed the works of the devil. I've crushed the serpent's head. I've clothed myself in righteousness as your prophet, your priest, and your king. I save all who come unto me by faith. And that righteousness that I've accomplished will be your righteousness. And I'll clothe you in it. And I'll put you in the breastplate of righteousness. And I'll put the whole armor of God upon you. And I'll clothe you with zeal as a cloak. But to those who will not repent, to those who will not hear and heed and believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, if you won't receive my death, my suffering, my perfect satisfaction of the penalty for sin, there's nothing left but judgment. According to their deeds, accordingly He will repay fury to His adversaries, recompense to His enemies. The coastlands He will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. Is that you? Have you turned from transgression? Have you recognized that that unrighteousness with which you filled yourself is like all of the rubbish that the men of Abimelech used to fill up all of the wells of Abraham in the days of Isaac. They were angry with Isaac, so they filled up all those wells of water. That life-sustaining water. And they filled it up with rubbish and there was nothing. And the people were dying of thirst as it were. You filled yourself with all unrighteousness, with your sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. And the Lord says, will you turn from it? He says, I'll get that rubbish out of those wells. I'll clean them out and I will be as a fountain of living waters within your soul. You will be a well-watered garden. The rose will flourish in the desert. I will give you life and fruitfulness. Their corrupt character. Secondly, their toxic relationships. Their toxic relationships. Again, we see that word full. Full of envy. Halfway through verse 29. Full of envy. Full of. Saturated with. And then it lists five different sins. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, and evil-mindedness. Or 
could be translated bad manners or it's really the word bad or evil combined with the word for ethos or ethics. So bad manners, tainted ethics. But these five terms refer to the fruit of our evil character by nature in our own relationships. So he begins with envy. You can see how he sort of paved the way with this because the, the last sin in the first section was maliciousness, malignity. And that paves the way here to see our sin manifested in our relationships. And by the way, that's important. To understand that our relationships are a gauge of our spirituality, of our morality, of our immorality, of our sin, of our righteousness. Our moral character will manifest itself in relationships. That's why marriage, uh, we just celebrated the uh, 17th anniversary yesterday, uh, marriage is a context in which sin is manifested like never before. As a Christian, when you get married, now you're in such close proximity, the two become one, that there's no way to hide those quirks and sins. Um, there, there are so many things that when we're isolated, when we're single, when we're an individual level, when we don't have that one flesh proximity and intimacy, these things don't come out. But they come out more than ever in the context of marriage. And that's not a bad thing. That doesn't mean that it's good for man to be alone. What it means is that it's, it's good for those things to come to the surface so that the Spirit of God can sanctify us and we can work together to fight those things. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. There's, something, there's an advantage in fighting the battles of the Christian life with yourself, your spouse, and the Lord working through you. It's not as though we want these things to remain down under the surface. Sometimes it's good for them to come out so they can be addressed prayerfully and spiritually. But corrupt character manifests itself in these toxic relationships. Envy. We talked a lot about this uh, just a couple weeks ago in our other sermon series. Love does not envy. Envy is this bitter spirit of rivalry and competition where we resent the good that happens to other people because we think that they don't deserve that. I deserve that. Or they've sinned against me and now they're experiencing some pleasure or privilege that I don't have. And so I want them to be brought down a few notches and maybe I take that into my own hands. Maybe I don't. But I mourn at their joy and I rejoice when, when bad things happen in their life. Envy. Resentment. It's really grounded in this self-seeking. Self-seeking. And just to remind us a little bit, there was a verse that we leaned on a couple weeks ago. James chapter 3, verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Verse 16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion... And every evil thing are there. So this is chaos. This is confusion. This is every evil thing filled with all unrighteousness. Why? Full of envy. That's why. This is the heart sin that produces so much of what we see around us. And James goes on to say that that leads to murder. Which, which Paul reinforces in his list here. James chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So there's that self-seeking, that lust, that covetousness from their corrupt character that boils over the desire for pleasure, warring in their members. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war yet you do not have because you do not ask. James is saying that our envy, our bitterness, leads even to violence against other people. It can lead to murder. But Jesus says when it leads us to hate our brother in our heart and to speak evil to our brother or concerning our brother, that that in itself is in principle an act of murder. We've murdered our brother in our heart. Envy leads to murder. 
but it also leads to, to other things. Fighting, quarreling, warring. Galatians 5, 15-17 speaks of the Galatians, even in the church, biting and devouring one another. Biting and devouring one another. Fighting, quarreling, complaining, grumbling. Paul says it leads to deceit. Now if there's one thing that is toxic in a relationship, it is deceit. If you can't trust your parents, or you can't trust your children, or you can't trust your spouse, or you can't trust your elders, if you can't trust someone, if people are lying to you, if people are being deceptive towards you, that is a surefire way to ruin a relationship. When we deceive other people, we're manipulating those other people to get what we want. And when people are on the other end of that and they feel that, you know it yourself, when someone's deceived you, manipulated you, lied to you, point blank, told a lie, and you uncover it, you're hurt, you feel despised. It's one of the worst feelings in the world. And we live in a society that has less and less integrity. More and more we have to be on our toes and we can't trust people because it's become commonplace to lie. It's become commonplace to make all kinds of exceptions and excuses that allow me to be economical with the truth in one way or another. Uh, Micah describes this chaotic, deceitful culture. Micah 7, verses 2-5. through five. Listen to this. The faithful man has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among men, filled with all unrighteousness. They all lie in wait for blood. There's murder. Every man hunts his brother with a net. By the way, if we think that murder is not going to be commonplace, uh, even in the suburbs, within the near future, we're deceiving ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. It's already more and more common. You look at Chicago. You look at Baltimore. You look at a lot of the major cities. um, You look at just news reports of things that are happening in our own communities. Not just abortion, but shedding the blood of innocent adults and children. Uh, Violence in the streets. We see more and more of it. Even disconnected from politics, but all the more you see it as, uh, as election seasons come and go, you, you can see this heightened violence. Uh, we should not be at all surprised to see blood in the streets more and more because that's, that's what comes from envy. That's what comes from this self-deification where I'm God and so now there's everybody's God. They're all battling to see whose sovereign will is superior. The battle of the gods. That's what we're seeing. But in any event, Mike is pointing this out. But it's not just murder and strife. He says that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. And the great man utters his evil desire. So they scheme together. The best of them. Now, if you were looking down a ballot. uh, If you were looking down a ballot in an election whether it's a national election, president, vice president, uh, whether it's a local or state election, isn't it the case that, that uh, we often find ourselves saying the best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. That's the dishonesty and the wickedness of the great men, of, of the politicians, the people that hold office in our land. The day of your watchmen and your punishment comes Now shall be their perplexity. So you say, okay, well, people in high places are deceptive and they're taking bribes and speaking evil things and promoting injustice. And the best of these politicians is like a thorn hedge. Okay, but that's not happening among the American people, right? That's just the politicians. That's just Washington. That's just Lansing but not, not the American people. No, my friends. Listen to what Micah says of the common people in a stage like this. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. 
Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies, the people, in other words, that you can't trust, that are going to lie to you, are those of his own household. Therefore, I will look to the Lord, he says. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, manifesting these bad manners, evil-mindedness. He says, I look at the culture from the top to the bottom. Read Jeremiah 5. He interviews the great men and they're lacking in righteousness and faithfulness. And he says, well then I'll go... Or first he begins with the lower class, then he goes to the great men. But from top to bottom, he says they're all corrupt. And that's what Micah is saying here. You can't trust anyone except God. And I want to say to you, I'm, I'm going to close this up here and we'll, we'll get to the last several sections this evening, Lord willing. But I want to say to you that if you have been on the receiving end of a toxic relationship, if you have experienced the unpleasantness of people that are untrustworthy, that are hypocritical, that are seeking to manipulate you, they don't love you, they don't have your best interest, and perhaps even those people are professing Christians. And you've experienced this. Now what is Satan going to try to do in your life? What temptation is he going to bring in to try to get you off kilter here? What's he going to do to try to derail any interest that you have in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to say like he said to these Gentiles, look at the hypocritical Jews. You ought to blaspheme the name of God because of them. That's what Satan said to the Gentiles. And they did, as we'll see in in their venomous words. They were haters of God. Revilers, blasphemers of God's name. Satan used that. They saw the hypocrisy of the Jews. And what happened? Satan used that to say, well, I'm just going to write that off then. But my friend, listen to what Micah is saying. Your enemies are those of your own household. You can't trust them. But Micah's response here, Micah's solution is not to just blow it all off and run off to the foreign country with the Gentiles and blaspheme the name of God. There are some people that take that approach, but I think on the Day of Judgment, we're going to find those people made a big mistake. And we don't want to listen to them. Micah says, therefore, I will look to the Lord. The Lord is not envious. The Lord does not rejoice in the downfall of sinners. The Lord became poor so that we could become rich. He actually took a pay cut so that we could get a raise. He actually humbled Himself and experienced suffering and death so that we could have life. He's not against you or your well-being. He's not self-seeking in that sense. He's not a murderer like your father the devil, the father of lies who's seeking to tempt you and bring your soul to hell. He doesn't fight and strive. He's the prince of peace. He doesn't deceive you. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He's not evil-minded. He's full of love and compassion and pity for sinners. So if you've experienced untrustworthy friends, companions, uh, sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, in-laws, don't respond to that by turning away from the only one in the universe that can actually fill your soul with peace and righteousness from the only one who always speaks the truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. Turn to the Lord. Look to the Lord. Wait for the God of your salvation. He will hear you. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. How can you sleep at night? Having looked at just the first half of this list of sins, how can you sleep at night or take a nap this afternoon or whatever you're going to do? How can you do that and have any peace in your soul without a Savior? If you're filled with unrighteousness, if you admit, yes, I've told lies, I've been envious and angry with other people, I've been quarreling and fighting and speaking evil, I've engaged in sexual lust, 
I've been covetous and complaining and never satisfied. I'm filled with unrighteousness. You know that those who practice these things are worthy of death. How can you sleep at night? How can you have peace of mind without a Savior? Without righteousness that comes from God? How can you read these verses and come out saying, well, I'm in a position to intellectually evaluate the Bible with a cool head. No, you're not. You should be on the floor begging for the mercy of God, and me too. One final point, just something uh, for those that are believers here this morning. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. I'm not saying examine yourself to see if you're a Christian. There's a place for that. That's important at times. But in this case, examine your life against the sins that the Apostle Paul sets forth in these verses. Is this you? Is this me? Do we need to confess these sins? Do we need to recognize that our wells of salvation have been filled with a bunch of crud and grime and muck and mire and we need to be cleansed. This evening we're going to see the venomous words of the ungodly. My friends, Isaiah looked at that and he said, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Are we able to look at these sins and say, I've been deceitful. I've been exaggerating the truth. I've been speaking it unseasonably over against somebody's reputation. I've been fighting and quarreling with those around me. Children, uh, have you been disrespecting your parents? Parents, have you been uh, exasperating your children and stirring them up to wrath? The fact of the matter is that we need to examine ourselves and we need to confess these sins to the Lord our righteousness and He will take out all the stuff out of that well And He will fill us with Himself. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the good news of Jesus Christ that He has conquered, that He has suffered and died and offered up Himself as a sacrifice for our sins, satisfying divine justice, that He has risen again victoriously from the dead, and that He grants perfect righteousness and peace to all who will receive Him. To all who call upon His name in faith. To all who look at their sin and look at the Savior and turn from the one to the other in true repentance unto life. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would give the increase that You would be building Your kingdom gathering Your people, Your elect, Your saints, and building up this place as a holy temple in the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.